Join author and former Vibe Editor-in-Chief Danielle Smith and Black Girl Songbook as she celebrates and uplifts the talent of Black women in the music industry. Tune in for in-depth discussions with your favorite songwriters, producers, and artists, as well as anecdotes from Danielle. Plus, you'll hear the songs of Black women who changed the landscape of American music forever. Check out Black Girl Songbook exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore, and you're listening to Black on the Air. Always good to have you dropping in on this podcast. We do our best over here to give you entertaining conversation. And this one is one of those coming up today. I speak with Michael Pollan, the uh, uh, author of This Is Your Mind on Plants. And if you're a fan of Michael Pollan's, you know, he he delivers a lot of interesting stuff. And this book is fascinating. It's all about drugs and and uh, he covers uh, the three uh, uh, types of drugs, opiates, caffeine, and psychedelics. And man, there's some really good rabbit holes in here. It's a really good book. But talking with Michael is fantastic. I hope you guys enjoy it. We talked for over an hour. It's a really fun conversation. So that's coming up. And I hope you enjoy it. And this is one of those books um, is great for the summer because you can just immerse yourself in it. There's a lot of a lot of really interesting stuff in in it, so I highly recommend it. Um, you know, if you kind of like that kind of thing. So, anyhow, um, what's going on? A uh, couple of announcements. I'm going to be taking a bit of a hiatus for much of August. I have uh, some stuff that I'll do, and I'll announce a little later. Some business that I got to take care of in August. That's going to take me away. Uh, from the podcast for a while. So we're going to take a longer break than we normally have. Um, and I think we'll have one more pod after this, but I'm not sure. We had something scheduled and it kind of fell through, but we'll see. I know it's a little tease, but we'll see what's going to happen. So I'll miss you guys, you know, I'm not going to see you for a while. Uh, but, you know, we'll keep in touch on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about, you know, when I come back. But I am looking forward to that. Um, some good adventures uh, coming up that I'm very excited about. And I'll share with you guys um, at the at the appropriate time. So that's happening. Um, I don't have much of a weigh-in today. You know, I was just trying to think this morning. What do I even want to talk about? I was excited by the uh, Richard Branson going into space. As you guys know, I love space. Wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. That whole uh, thought of... Uh, Breaking that barrier for ordinary people is very exciting to me. A lot of people are hating on it too, but it's the same type of hate that happened during the original space race. So I'm like, whatever. You know, why is a billionaire going into space when we need to do that? When we were first going to the moon, and I remember this as a kid, people were saying, why are we going to the moon when we can't even cure the common cold? I'm like, what does one have to do with the other? Why can't we do multiple things? Why do we say you can't do that until this other thing? And by the way, we're never going to cure the common cold. So that means we'll never go to the moon if we use your logic to just stay on earth. And we have to 
you know, make everything right before we can do things like explore, you know. So I am not a cynical space person. I'm a aspirational space person. And I love it. I don't care that he's a billionaire or Bezos that they're doing it. You know, I love the fact that they're breaking that barrier. So, I mean, man, in a few years, it's funny how things change so fast once barriers are broken. And I love that. I am a very, um, I want to say optimistic, but that's not quite the word. I'm kind of a dreamer when it comes to frontiers like space and that type of thing and what things can happen. I'm very, I'm very positive when it comes to that. So I don't mind. I know it's people's jobs to put a damper in that and they'll do it from all different angles, you know, economic angle, it's a privilege angle, all this. And also I'm not dismissing what they're saying as invalid because, you know, they probably make good points. It's like, to me, it's like, yeah, but it's still cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You kind of make a good point, but I mean, he did go to fucking space. That was pretty cool. You know, people can just do it. I would love to do it. It'd be so great. And I know this is kind of like um, you're doing that suborbital thing, which um, Alan Shepard did, you know, in the Mercury 7, uh, the first American in space. And by that time, I think the Russians are already doing, you know, full orbits and all that. But our first venture into space was the suborbital kind of 90-minute thing. And that's kind of what they did. So you get kind of the feeling of space and you kind of see what's out there. You get the weightlessness and all that. And there's a lot of people who signed up to do this and they're all rich. You know, you need a lot of money. But hopefully these people are the ones that, you know, are testing all this out to make sure it all works, you know. And in time, who knows, maybe five to 10 years or whatever, the prices will really come down. And this would be a real interesting adventure to take. But could you imagine if it changes the way we just travel? Like if you go from Los Angeles to the other side of the world, you know, you go to... Uh, France or, you know, in Eastern Europe or Africa or something like that, and you're able to go into space first and then just just drop in there and it takes like two hours, something that would normally take 15 hours or something, that would be amazing. That would really be amazing. So it could change the way in which we travel around the globe, the way in which we circumnavigate, which used to take months in a ship, right? And now it could take a couple of hours. Guys, this is fascinating. This is good stuff, you guys. So I ignore the cynicism. It's like, whatever. Uh, <laughs> we're still going into space. So that was very excited about that, is all I'm saying. Especially with all the crap going on. Um, the biggest thing right now that is bugging me is the whole COVID thing. This I'm in you know Los Angeles County here in Pasadena. <sighs> you know, I think tonight they're reinstituting this, reinstituting this mask mandate, which is just ridiculous. Um, and they say it's because unvaccinated people is just making it <laughs> just a horrible situation here because vaccinated people can still get this Delta variant or whatever, but they probably won't get that sick, but they could spread it to people. And the whole point about this whole masking thing to me, I thought was to prevent hospitals from being overrun, but, and apparently you can get, you know, COVID and this Delta variant if you're vaccinated but you probably won't get that sick. So I'm like, well, who are we doing this mask for anyway? Is it just for these unvaccinated people? Get vaccinated, people. What the fuck? Seriously, get vaccinated. You want to protect yourself and we got to do this for, you know, the good of all. I understand your civil liberties and all that stuff, but 
Protect yourself. Why would you not want to do that? I don't understand this. I really don't understand, like, uh, there's a high percentage of, like, police and uh, fire department and that kind of stuff, people that haven't been vaccinated. I don't get that at all because they're on the front lines. I would think they'd want that protection. I just don't get where that's coming from. And Donald Trump, you know, that motherfucker, you know, he wanted to take credit for developing the vaccine, but then won't say anything about people getting the vaccine. And all the the Trumpies that follow him who aren't getting the vaccine, you know, and Tucker Carlson, these people that are just spreading these lies. And they spread the lies by keeping it in this mystery area. You know, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Well, I don't know. You know, well, anything can happen. I mean, this is experimental. I don't know what's going to happen. It's like, fuck you, motherfucker. Just get the vaccine. Just shut the fuck up. Stand on one side of this. Stop standing in the middle. Make up your fucking mind, (laughs) you know. Or we should say, if you're going to take your chances, fine. Then it's on you. And I don't know why we all have to do it. So anyhow, that really bugs me. Hopefully this thing will be resolved. Um, We'll see what's going to happen. But as you can tell, I don't have a lot of intelligent things to say about it. I just, it just irks me. But anyhow, um, I'm keeping it short today. And I think right before we do the last one before the break, I'll weigh in uh, with something a little more substantial. And please, guys, as always, um, send me messages, tweet, tell me what you want to talk about and all that kind of stuff. But we have a good conversation today, so I don't mind. Keeping it good, uh, keeping it kind of short. So that's it. Michael Pollan's coming up and hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Welcome back, everybody. Man, it's been a summer of treats. This is a treat, treat, treat. I love to go down rabbit holes, and this author is one of my favorites in terms of the rabbit holes he allows us to go <laughs> down. And and his memory is much better than mine, which I appreciate. <laughs> but uh, his latest book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. Guys, this is such a fascinating book for so many different reasons. And you know him from all his other books, How to Change Your Mind, Omnivore's Dilemma, all that good stuff. Michael Pollan, welcome to Black on the Air. Thanks so much for being here, my friend. Oh, great to be here, Larry. Thank you. It's so nice to see you in your little cubby at home there, (laughs) hanging out on your book tour, virtual book tour. Such an interesting book. It's such, you know, I love how books, and this book for you, arguably started like uh, almost 30 years ago or 25 years ago or whatever. Yeah, that's true. That's you know, the first chapter was the first draft of the first chapter was 1996. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing when you think about that, you know, that uh, a journey of that kind of started with this uh, article that you did about poppies and everything yeah, in your you own know, experience. Right? I've been interested in plants in general and the mm-hmm. ones that change our consciousness for a long time. Yeah. I think ever since I was in high school and tried to grow some pot, you know, like, yeah. oh, there's this little <laughs> seed in the bag and this will actually grow. Right. Um, and, that was your uh, green thumb was, was the pot thumb, right? It was yes. a big inspiration for my green thumb. It was amazing. They thought you could grow your own drugs. Um, and uh, uh, in 96, 
a friend, an editor friend, sent me an underground press book called Opium for the Masses, mm-hmm. written by a guy named Jim Hogshire, yeah. who had a zine called Pills A Go-Go. And he was, he was a big drug that. aficionado. And he was claiming in this book that from commonly available seeds of poppies, mm-hmm. Papaver somniferum is the variety, yeah. you could grow poppies and that these were the same ones that opium came from and that mm-hmm. you could take the seed heads and crush them and mix them in hot water and make a tea. And it's like, oh, this is cool. I have to try this. Um, <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd maybe get a call. I was writing columns at the time yeah. about, about what was going, adventures in my garden. And um, and I start communicating with him and we, you know, trade some emails and I'm asking him uh-huh. some horticultural advice and does he have any seeds we can swap? And uh-huh. and uh, and then I and were you worried. kind of like an innocent horticulturalist at this time? Just like just wanting to because it feels very innocent to me, you know, even hey, going back and innocent. reading your art. Yeah, I didn't understand the legal implications. Yeah. I was pretty naive about this stuff sure. and I was a pretty novice gardener, but I was fascinated by gardening yeah. and. And what you can learn in your garden about right. the human relationship to the natural world. It's just mm-hmm. such a dynamic place. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, so I uh, i plant my poppies and they're coming up. And then I get word <laughs> that Jim Hogshire has been busted. Wow. And that some SWAT team in ninja, black ninja suits busted into his apartment, threw him up against the wall, charged him with manufacturing a Schedule 1 substance, uh-huh. uh, Schedule 2 substance. And uh, all he had was uh, dried poppy heads he got from a florist shop right? and his book. And his book was proof he had the intent of making those poppies into opium. Right. Um, because as it turns out, and I learned that it's fine to grow them as long as you don't know what they are. Yes. As, as yes. soon as you know that <laughs> yes. you are manufacturing a scheduled substance, yes. you're breaking federal law. As soon as you bite the apple, you are aware Exactly. It is all about the state of knowledge. And um, so this was terrifying because I was on his hard drive, you know, that I was doing the same thing and I was going to write about it. And so it started this summer of of paranoia and fear. Uh And I started investigating at the same time I was gardening to see what the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, was up Uh to. And it turns out they were harassing gardeners, garden centers, seed Uh merchants, trying to stop a, a fad from taking, you know, from right. exploding uh, that they thought his book would start. And in the end, I did write a long article. It was much more about the drug war than horticulture or sure. there was about, or the intersections of, of horticulture and the drug war. Uh-huh. And, um, but on the advice of lawyers, they said, look, this is a dangerous article to publish. Uh, I, I had done it for Harper's Magazine. Right. And uh, they recommended I remove two passages from the piece uh, one about uh, how the recipe, how do you, how you turn poppy heads into a, a narcotic tea. Pretty much explaining how to make a bomb, which they Basically, don't Basically, right? yeah, they saw it that way. And then mm-hmm. the other the other thing was the trip report. You know, how does it feel? How does it make you feel? And they thought those two passages were the most antagonistic to the government's agenda. So I took those out and I published it. I always regretted mm-hmm. um, the self-censorship. I, I just, I never felt good about it, but I felt it was the safest thing to do to protect me and my family and my land because, you know, under the drug laws, I don't think people realize that. But if your property is guilty of breaking the law by yeah. hosting even a cannabis plant in some states, but these these opium poppies, they can confiscate your land, uh, even if they yeah. don't convict you. So the damage that the drug war has done to our civil liberties is just astonishing. And I learned so- all about that. 
It is so pernicious. This is a whole book in and of itself, I think, is the overreach the government has had. And it's guilty until proven innocent. Drugs are the only area to me where it seems the government is, you're guilty until yeah. you prove yourself innocent. And the fact that they can seize your property, which isn't that guaranteed in the Constitution? We have a right to life. You liberty. would think, but our property but Property doesn't. is one of the, <laughs> the rights that we have, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's become this... Uh, gravy train for police departments. Um, you know, yes. they, they, they really like busting uh, people in really nice cars and looking for traces of drugs in those cars. Uh, and then they get the cars and they can sell them or use them uh, as they see fit. No, the asset forfeiture laws are, are seem completely unconstitutional. Many Absolutely. aspects of the drug war are. Completely. Uh, all the protections against search and seizure, unreasonable search are just thrown out the window when it comes Gone. to the drug laws. Yeah. So I, that was my education. Um, yeah. But the, the, the irony of that piece, something I didn't understand at the time that I was writing it, nobody understood, is that in the very same summer when the government was harassing gardeners and, and making a big issue out of uh, people growing a little opium in the garden, um, Purdue Pharma, uh, the notorious pharmaceutical company owned by right. the Sackler family, was... Um, introducing Oxycontin and, and launching their aggressive marketing campaign, which really is what sowed the seeds of the opioid crisis. Right. Legal which, opiates that were sold be on with the, the false claim that they were safer, less addictive than traditional opiates. Or as and, I like to call it, white people crack. What? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's it. That is it. Because when uh, black people were on crack in the 80s, there was no crisis. But as soon as white people got on it got serious in the odds, oh, my God, what is this yeah. crack that white people have? Well, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the biggest casualty of the drug war, of course, were people of color. I mean, if you look at oh, who completely. got arrested. And, uh, you know, I, I, contain, I, I have in the book this, this notorious now quote from John Ehrlichman. Yes, I remember Nixon's that. Nixon's domestic policy advisor, who was asked by a journalist in the late 90s um, what the drug war was about. And he very honestly kind of pulled back the curtains and told us. And what he said is absolutely outrageous in its cynicism and, and candor. Uh, he said, uh, the Nixon administration had two enemies, hippies and black people. Mm -hmm. And if we could criminalize their drugs, we would have this powerful tool with which to harass them, demonize them, uh, undercut their credibility. So we went after LSD to get the hippies and cannabis to get the hippies and black people. And, um, Heroin uh, and heroin, definitely. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, and that this was became a very powerful tool because you could go into a neighborhood, you could go into someone's house and uh, find some small amount of cannabis or whatever it was or plant it. And, uh, you know, it was off to the races. The police like drug crimes because they're very mm -hmm. straightforward and easy to prove as long as you can, you know, put the drugs on somebody or find them with the drugs. Yeah. Um, much easier to prove than other crimes. Uh, it's the police work is just couldn't be simpler. And, and the sentences are tremendous. It's terrible. You know, as a side story, you know, of course, your book doesn't go into detail on this type of thing, but especially during the 80s. And when I think about the relationship of black people people, especially in certain neighborhoods, to the police and why these problems have been happening. Drugs are a big part of that that isn't told as much right now. It's usually, you know, unarmed man gets shot. But the whole relationship between police having just a free reign on so many communities of color. I mean, the 
the battering rams that were used back in those days just yeah. to knock anybody's door down. And the terror that was uh, just used in those neighborhoods was just horrible well, during you know, that time. If you decriminalize drugs, I think uh, some, th- th- that is the big point of friction. Uh-huh between people of color and the police. And if you took that away, I mean, what are all these traffic stops about, right? Yeah. They, 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 they cascade sometimes because there's a search that they want to do and they're allowed to search your car. And if there is no crime involved in finding small amounts of drugs, all that goes away. I mean, I think it would, it would do a lot to reduce this, this, all this friction. And what's interesting is your book, and I'm trying to think, is this book about plants or about drugs? You know, because <laughs> it is, it's interesting. It's about both. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. about the, this amazing fact that a group of plants and some fungus have figured out how yeah. the precise neurochemistry to change what goes on in our heads. That's an wow. astonishing fact of natural really, history. Yes, it is. And it's about the fact that we have, for some reason, um, evolved to like changing our consciousness. We yes. just are not satisfied with everyday no. normal consciousness. <laughs> no, I got it going right now. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. I mean, caffeine is the, uh, and that's one of the reasons I wanted mm-hmm. to write about caffeine because mm-hmm. however you feel about drugs, chances are you're involved with one of them. Absolutely. Um, and caffeine is the biggest. Um, 90% of people uh, have a daily relationship with caffeine. Yeah. And um, and it sort of forces you to rethink, well, how do you feel about addiction? How do you feel about drugs? How do you feel about changing consciousness? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I was, it was very important to me to put a, a, a legal, uncontroversial plant drug in this book, along with um, uh, opium and, and mescaline. Yeah. And it's interesting. One of the things that you bring up, which is also interesting is that uh, all drugs pretty much are toxic, you know, but they also can be a tonic and it all comes down to dose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dose makes the poison as uh, yeah. the Renaissance uh, uh, doctor, I guess he was Paracelsus said, and it's really true. A lot of these things at high dose will kill you and yeah. at low dose do more interesting things. Most of them are uh, begin as plant pesticides. The plants are manufacturing these mm-hmm. chemicals to defend themselves against insects and animals that would eat them. Um, but the plants discovered at some point that being really lethal at small doses is actually not a good strategy because if you start killing your pests outright, you're going to select for resistant members of that. It's like it's like overusing a pesticide in, sure. in agriculture. Eventually you get some resistant weed or some resistant bug and mm-hmm. then you're and then you're screwed. You lose, you know, your pesticide no longer works. Much better to have something that just kind of discombobulates the mind of your pest or causes it to forget where it saw you or or causes it to act in a in a yeah. stupid way like yes. put on a lampshade on the head and, <laughs> right, and if right. you're if you're an insect kind of thrashing around you know bombed some bird's going to come get you um cuz you're going to yeah. forget to hide so right, all right. these kind of more clever mental strategies uh, are better for the plant and as it turns out really interesting to us yeah, and each has, you know, one of the things that really fascinated me, Michael, is because you don't think of this necessarily, but each one has a real distinct effect on the body and your relationship even to the world when you're taking them. And 
the way even that they can be abused, you know, has to do with that too, or the way that maybe they can be therapeutic, you know, is all kind of interesting. And let's start with opium. Like what is, what is the major effect that opium or opiates maybe have on the body or the brain? They're, they're they're depressant. Mm -hmm. Um, They, they're downers. In other words, they lower the rate of heart, heartbeat and cardiovascular, Mm -hmm. you know, function. Um, They, plug into pleasure centers in the brain, mm-hmm. um, endorphins and that, and by doing so they kind of sh- short circuit pain, mm. um, both physical and mental pain. Um, so it kind of shuts out the world in some ways. Maybe. Yeah. They shut mm-hmm. out the world in some ways. You don't have hallucinations. You just mm-hmm. have this wash of good feeling. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and you, you can easily ignore pain. You don't feel it as strongly because, mm-hmm. um, you know, when the, when the body is suffering, when you, when you have a serious injury, you have a release of certain chemicals that are natural yeah. painkillers. And that allows you to get through a crisis and, and survive it and not be crippled by the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, the drug kind of hijacks that system. Uh, it, it imitates that system. And it's another case where the plant has found precisely the molecular key to a, to a neurotransmitter in your brain, which is you know, quite remarkable. So, um, but since opiates do depress the cardiovascular system, um, the autonomic nervous system, if you take too much of it, it'll kill you. It'll, you'll, yeah. it'll you know, quiet your heartbeat to the point that you don't have one. Um, so that's, that's the danger. Uh, they're also addictive. Um, uh-huh. it, the more you take it, the more you need and your uh-huh. body stops producing its own chemicals. So you need this outside chemical, although, you know, you can break the addiction, uh, contrary to the myths about, uh, withdrawal from heroin and other opiates. It's not as bad as actually as withdrawal from alcohol, uh, which can kill you. Uh-huh. Um, and that it, people describe it as a bad flu. Um, getting off of opiates. Um, but addictions are very, you know, I've been reading a lot about addiction and uh-huh. it's it's much more complicated, I think, than the stories we've been told during the drug war. Uh-huh. Um, it's just as interesting that, you know, most of the people who use an opiate don't get addicted. Really? Um, I wanted to ask you that. Uh, how, you know, there's so much here. Like, how addictive is an opiate for the most part. And can many, like, I, I never thought you can be a uh, casual heroin user. I just thought that yeah. didn't make sense. Well, Carl Hart, yeah. you know, has made that point. Uh, he's a, he's a Columbia uh, psychologist. He wrote mm-hmm. an interesting book called uh, drug use for grownups that recently came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, he speaks of his casual heroin use. Wow. You know, he, he uses it the way a lot of people use uh, cocaine in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And, um, and doesn't have a problem with it, or so he says. And, uh, you know, basically most people, overwhelming majority don't get addicted. So the question is, why do some people get addicted? Uh-huh. And there was a really interesting experiment done a few years ago that that sheds a, a light on this. Um, most of what we know about addiction with either opiates or, or, or cocaine comes from these experiments done where you put a rat in a cage right, right, and you give them these two levers and mm-hmm. one of them administers uh, heroin or morphine to its veins and the other sugar water, mm-hmm. a nutrient. And you put that rat in the cage and give them that choice and it will press the heroin uh, or the cocaine until addicted or dead over mm. in, in preference to the food. That suggested to us that this is inevitable, that it's a property of the chemical, that it's so seductive 
that mm-hmm. if you are exposed to it enough, you will become addicted. But then this other, uh, this psychologist in British Columbia named Bruce Alexander thought, you know, there's something wrong with this experiment. And he redid it. And what he did was create a really nice cage for the rats, take them out of isolation, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Um, and give them good food, uh, other rats to play with or have sex wow. with. And then he gave them the choice of two water bottles, one with morphine and one with um, water. And they sampled the morphine, uh, but they used a fraction as much. They didn't get into trouble with it. It was wow. just kind of a, you know, recreation. Kind of a middle-class rat. <laughs> it was a very middle-class <laughs> rat. But what it tells you is that your circumstances in life may predict the likelihood of getting addicted mm-hmm. more than anything, you know, even two people with the same drug. If someone is, is poor, if someone is miserable, if someone mm-hmm. has trauma in their life, yeah, they're likely to get addicted. Um, and someone who lives under better circumstances is not. And so, you know, it, it argues for, uh, instead of a war on drugs, a war on poverty, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. the causes of addiction may be, may be environmental to a much greater extent than we, than we've appreciated. And it I does. think that is a key insight. Environmental or even psychological and emotional, when you have a hole that you need to fill, And that drug is filling that hole. It's self-medication. And if you live a life where pleasure is not easily available to you, this is a very um, cheap and convenient form of pleasure. And uh, so um, I think another interesting illustration of the same point is, you know, in Vietnam, fully 20 percent of American servicemen were addicted to heroin. Crazy. Um, And you know what kind of lives they were leading and and yeah. heroin was a was a pleasure and a and a, a painkiller in every sense and uh and everybody worried when they got back to the united states we'd have this epidemic of uh, right. heroin abusers but in fact 95 percent of them just stopped that's um, crazy they had no problem stopping at all yeah and that's because their cage had changed um or they'd yeah. been let out of the cage yes and uh, and that made all the difference. Hundred percent would have been doing heroin if I was in Vietnam in those days. Hundred percent, thousand percent would have been there too. Oh, the horrors of war! I mean, you have to be doing some kind of drugs. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of drug use too, and it wasn't just uh, heroin. Obviously, there's a lot of cannabis too. Yeah. Um, so, so we have to rethink addiction, and and this is mm-hmm. a strong argument. Um, you know, the Swiss have this very interesting program where if you're a heroin addict. Uh, and you're arrested, they put you into this program instead of incarcerating you where they mm-hmm. actually write you a prescription for heroin, Yeah, which means you're going to have a safe drug supply that is not contaminated uh, mm-hmm. with fentanyl, which is really what's killing a lot of people. They don't know sure. the strength of the heroin they're using. Um, but so they keep you steady on the drug. They don't try to get you off it until they've fixed your life, more or less, made sure mm-hmm. you have a good job, good housing, good therapy, and then they work on getting you off the drug. They, they they get the order right, I think, in a way we don't. Yeah. Is there a difference between a, since you, this is about plant, the, the natural occurrence of opium, like the way mm-hmm. you did it with grinding up the seeds and having that nasty tea that you talk about, as opposed to a synthetic opiate, like the whole problem with OxyContin, is, is that delivery system make it more toxic for people or... Yeah. Where supposedly it's supposed to be this this therapeutic thing, but it's actually more poisonous, maybe? Is that what the difference well, is? Or you know, 
this is also a fruit of the drug war. We mm -hmm. tend to intensify the drugs that are being traded illicitly. The reason being that mm -hmm. um, uh, the penalties when you get caught are based on weight. So if you can get more bang for your buck, I mean, look what happened to cannabis over the last 30 years. You know, mm -hmm. what had been a kind of mild drug is now quite an intense drug because of intensive breeding. And they understood that you had to get more THC into a small amount of cannabis mm -hmm. in order to deal with the fact that if you got caught, it was all going to get weighed. And so, and that's why LSD became so popular because it was virtually weightless. It's so measured small. In, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's measured in uh, millionths of a gram, micrograms. Mm -hmm. um, and there, but there is a difference. If you consume drugs in their natural form, uh, cocaine is a great example. In, in South America, in uh, Colombia and Bolivia, uh, peasants chew uh, coca leaves, you know, all day long, the mm -hmm. way we sip, uh, caffeine and um, they don't get into trouble with it. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's just it's fine. And uh, Andrew Weil has written about this, and um, he advocates that we should have coca chewing gum uh, and and kind of recreate well, that. Wasn't it in Coca Cola? I mean, that was well, it the, was the well, Coke yes, in Coca Cola. Was, right? <laughs> that's right until like 1906. But once you start refining it. Uh, mm -hmm. and intensifying it. Um, the white powder drugs are much more powerful and much more likely to get you in trouble. And I think that that is true. It's not to romanticize, you know, sure. natural drugs. There right. are there are drugs made in labs that are very good. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, if you're moving from a plant drug to a white powder drug, you are increasing the danger and the risk. Opium always kind of had a romantic relationship, it seemed, with the world in many ways. You know, it's been used in literature a lot, of course. Uh, Marx famously called religion, opium of the masses, you know, that type of thing. Uh, when did opium kind of fall out? Well, it was used widely in the West in in the 19th century. And, you know... You had uh, Coleridge and the other, and some of the other mm -hmm. romantic poets were big fans of opium. Um, people would go to these opium dens and smoke it. Yes, um, and people could keep it going for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. if you have a steady supply and you're not using needles, you know, it's 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 kind of remarkable that it's not this automatic downward spiral that we assume. Mm -hmm. Also, in America, opiates, opium was um, a, a big ingredient in the patent medicines. Um, mm that, you know, people took routinely, um, right. gave them to their babies when they were colicky. You could buy opium That's over the fantastic. counter. It was, it was completely Come here like crying, baby. I got something for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and Give me the too. other arm. Give me that arm. <laughs> <laughs> and it was this bitter liquid. And, yeah. um, uh, and actually what they, women would put it on their nipples. Um, oh. And uh, and force the baby who needed the nutri nutrients of the milk to uh, absorb it that way because it because they wouldn't do it on their own. It was very bitter. Yeah. Um, so it was you know it was routine and um, for a period of time. And and whenever you look at the history of drugs, you you realize they're constantly changing. Mm -hmm. At the same moment that alcohol was prohibited during prohibition, uh, cannabis and opium were legally available at any drugstore without a prescription. Um, so it just tells you that there's something really arbitrary about, you know, yeah. the drugs we celebrate at a given time and the drugs we condemn. And we're seeing that transition happen right now with the psychedelics. And it's really interesting to watch because the yeah. psychedelics were evil 
disruptive of society, drove people crazy, you know, sent them jumping off of buildings. And now that the research is finding that they have these therapeutic uses, um, that psilocybin in particular, magic mushrooms, may be very effective against uh, depression, uh, mm -hmm. obsessive compulsive disorder, addiction, all this research is going on, and which is what I wrote about in my last book, uh, How to Change Your Mind. Right. Um, and I see the identity of the psychedelics shifting to something that from being disruptive to society is actually conducive to the healthier working of society because we have such a giant mental health crisis uh -huh. and so few tools with which to deal with it that uh, I think that we're going to see uh, psilocybin approved by the FDA in the next five years. And, really? Uh, and MDMA or ecstasy, which will be improved, approved more quickly to treat trauma. It's, it's a uh, paper recently came out showing that it was very effective in treating PTSD. Let's talk about that effect that it has on the body. So opium, opiates kind of shuts things out. It's kind of this, almost this pain reliever. I like the way you described it too. And some people, when you hear about when they're first taking heroin, there's this warm feeling. I feel like it, you almost feel like you're in the cradle and you're being like, you know, yeah. there's something hugging you, shutting out everything. But I'm fascinated. I've never done, you know, psychedelics or that type of thing. And But I'm fascinated by the nature of what it does for you. And it seems like there's two possible things that happen. It either shows you the world as it actually is, which mm -hmm. gives you an experience you haven't quite had because it it kind of gets rid of a filter or it hallucinates a world as maybe it should be. You know, it gives you mm -hmm. a transformative experience. Like both of those have been kind of claimed by LSD in some of these things, you know, where LSD is more of the hallucinogenic and yeah. maybe uh, um, I can't pronounce the mushroom one. Um, psilocybin. Psilocybin is more of the hallucinogenic let's say <laughs> it elucidates mescaline more less so. yeah mescaline is a psychedelic that is less hallucinogenic i mean what you're pointing at is is very true which is that psychedelics are very variable in their effects uh -huh. it depends on you leary famously spoke about set and setting uh the, the the setting in which you're having the experience can influence it dramatically and your mindset, your expectations can influence it dramatically. So, you know, mm -hmm. there's, those visions are not in the, in the molecule, obviously. It's, they're in your head, and they're, mm -hmm. they're, the molecule is a catalyst uh, for bringing these things forward. But um, I think that, yeah, some psychedelics will take you to new worlds, uh, mm -hmm. and you will have sort of a waking dream uh, of, of, of a exotic place. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be wonderful and sometimes it can be terrifying. And people mm -hmm. do have really scary experiences. Um, the other thing that they do though is, uh, and pretty reliably in the case of psilocybin, is um, at high doses, is basically um, dissolve your ego. Mm -hmm. You have this sense that your, your normal sense of self is gone. And when that happens, which can be frightening because it feels like a death, um, but if you if you if you can surrender to it, it can be quite wonderful because when the walls of self come down, you merge with something larger than yourself and you mm -hmm. feel more connected than you ever have to nature, to other people, to the cosmos, whatever it is. Um, and that experience of ego dissolution, which which happened to me once uh, in my my research. What was that um, when you took the mescaline? 
No, that or was when was I the... took psilocybin for how oh, to psilocybin. change your mind in a, okay. in a guided, I had a guided uh, psychedelic journey with an underground guide. So I was in this, mm-hmm. who I really admired and trusted. And you have to feel very safe. I was going to say, that's got to be a major part of it, right? Is the safety? You no, know, it yeah. is. You have to feel, you have to feel in a place where you can let go, you know, where yeah. you can surrender. And it's better if it's not your house, you know, because the mailman might come to the door. Um, <laughs> somebody might call you a neighbor right. stops by with a casserole. Oh, yeah. fuck, you know? And um, so, you know, you're in this environment that's uh-huh. controlled by someone else who you trust and you can let go. And when that uh-huh. happens, you get out of your head, literally. Um, you know, that's the meaning of ecstasy, right? Is to get out of your yourself. And, uh-huh. um, and it's a really good place to be because a lot of us are caged in ourselves and um, uh, and our, our egos are very defensive structures. They protect us. They uh-huh. also tend to objectify everything else that isn't us. You know, we're the only subject and every, everything else, even other people are an object we can act on. Suddenly uh-huh. you see everything as being connected, deeply connected. And that can be a, a wonderful experience. And that is, I think, the the therapeutic experience. I uh-huh. think that for people struggling with things like depression, anxiety, obsession, um, it is their egos that are uh, the problem. They have a tyrannical ego that's highly mm. self-critical, telling wow. them they're worthless, telling yeah. them they can't get through the day without a drink. Um, and to be relieved of that uh, uh-huh. supervisory voice, that chatter in your head, is liberating and and, uh-huh. and it's the beginning of constructing some new stories about yourself and that seems to be what happens because the people who have the, the the best response to psilocybin who are being treated for mental illness are the ones who've had that experience of ego dissolution uh-huh. um and uh so it's 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 a very uh you know we don't know exactly how it's working how it works on the brain we do know what uh-huh. brain receptors uh, it's involved with it's the serotonin receptors, um, right. and uh, and it has a powerful effect on them. But after that, we don't really know uh, exactly what these drugs are doing in the brain. I mean, they're probably flooding it with serotonin. Yeah, um, in fact, the I think the depression drugs are the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I think SSRIs. Called. Yeah, yeah. They're they're more effective than they are though. For uh, it looks like for treating depression, which is quite remarkable. Ask. Yeah. What is the major the major difference in those? Well, the SSRIs um, actually we don't even know how they work. Whatever mm-hmm. they tell you that you know, yeah. the, the <laughs> assumption. No, the, yeah. the assumption. I remember I wrote this in the first draft of a chapter on neuroscience in the last mm-hmm. book, and I showed it to a neuroscientist, and it said, you know, SSRIs increase the levels of serotonin in the brain, and he said, no, actually, we've never proven that. We don't know that. <laughs> so, it could be a placebo, which well, also is it could interesting. Be. Yeah. Placebo is a is a fascinating example fascinating, yes. of mind over matter, and you know, and and you have to ask yourself: Is a placebo a drug if it acts yes. like a drug? And in fact, SSRIs perform only two or three percentage points better than placebo. That's crazy. I know, I know. It, placebo effect is incredible. If it's I give fascinating. You a pill, if I give you a pill and yeah. I say. Take this sugar pill. It's going to make you feel better. It will make you feel better. And if I wear a white coat when I do it, it'll work even better. What the fuck, man? So <laughs> I'm, I've been fascinated with placebos for a long time. I, I don't know if you know this, but I'm an amateur magician. I do slide a fan and that type of thing. And I've seen the effect that uh, like that has on people. Like it actually has an emotional effect. And sometimes mm-hmm. it can actually change 
you know, the nature of someone's relationship to something sometimes, just how, how they're opened up in a certain way, just and how they can believe something and that changes things. But placebo works on a almost a cellular level, which is fascinating yeah. to me. Like, how does that happen? I don't think we know. I think the links between uh, the brain and the body are just much more complicated than we yes. realize. And that your state of mind has a lot to do with your physical health um, mm -hmm. and vice versa. You know, we're learning right now that um, most of the serotonin in your in your system is produced by gut microbes. Yes, um, right. And right. so there's this powerful gut yeah. brain connection that we don't understand that. Right. Why are these microbes producing these psychoactive chemicals and why do we depend on them? And um, so I think. Look, I think there's so much more, you know, to it's be learned about the mind than we know. And that's one of the reasons that I think psychedelic research is yeah. so important, because I think it's going to teach us some of these things. Yeah, like when you use the phrase tyrannical ego, it's such a great phrase, because it just shows you how powerful judgment is, you know. And I'm assuming that what it does, it, I don't know if it gets rid of judgment or reframes judgment. You know, I think it, it I think what it essentially does is temporarily rewire your brain. I mean, mm -hmm. and they've seen this on brain scans and that, you know, thought is uh, represented in the brain by connections between different brain regions. And the yes. more you exercise those connections, let's mm -hmm. say you have a little narrative that you can't get through the day without alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, every day that you have that thought deepens that groove, strengthens right. that connection. It's a learning. That's what learning is, right? Is laying down these paths and then exercising them through repetition. What psychedelics seems to do is soften those connections and, mm -hmm. and allow you to overwrite them in, in, a, in effect. There's a beautiful metaphor that one of the psychedelic uh, scientists gave me, this Dutch guy named Mendel Kalin. And he said that if you, if you picture your mind as a snow-covered hill, and your thoughts as sleds going down it, mm -hmm. over time, those sleds dig deeper and deeper grooves to the point where you can't go down without falling into one. They become mm. kind of attractors and you end up in the same old grooves. And he said, psychedelics, uh, psychedelic therapy is like a fresh snowfall that fills all the grooves mm. and allows you to go down the hill on a new path, choose wow. a new path. I thought that was a beautiful metaphor. Yeah, and John Lennon, uh you know, the Beatles took LSD. They, people think it was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. That was the LSD song. But John insists it was Tomorrow Never Knows. As a Beatles right. fan, I, I know these things. And, you know, the famous open line, turn off your mind and float relax down. Relax and float downstream. Relax stream. and float downstream. It is not dying, you know. Yeah. It's that, a great. That, you're right. That's when the LSD started for them. And that and yeah. the advice in that song is the advice that guides today still yes. give you, uh, which is to say surrender. Well, he took it from Timothy Leary, I think, uh, the, uh, uh, the, some of the lyrics or whatever for that, you know, it's John. Oh, that might be, I didn't, I didn't realize that, but anyway, yeah. he's, he was a wise man on the subject. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it's funny how the connection to drug taking and creativity, you know, and one something, the difference between addiction and habit, you know, the habit of taking something like, and that's where Caffeine kind of lies in this area to me, you know, is it habitual or is it addictive? You know, is it because caffeine, what's fascinating about it, and I appreciate that you have a lot of history in there about it, too. It's a social drug unlike any other, you know, just the uh, the way coffee houses 
appears yeah. immediately after caffeine becomes a thing. You know, like it immediately becomes this social construct that kind of yeah, changes. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, yeah. caffeine is introduced to England in the 1650s. Coffee, yeah. tea, and chocolate arrive. It was a great decade. Yes, and, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Our, you know, people forget about that. Everybody looks at the Renaissance and Shakespeare and all this. this. Is, no, no, no. That was a big decade. And, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and immediately you have this explosion of coffee houses where yeah. men, it was all men, but yes. all classes could go and, 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 and they would talk. Yes. And, and some coffee houses, the focus would be all politics. Other coffee houses, it was business. Mm-hmm. Others was literature and still others was science. Yeah. And um, there was a kind of a special coffee house for each subject. And um it was sort of like the internet at the time. And mm-hmm. they were kind of networked together because people would go from one coffee house to another, bringing news and gossip. And there was, there was, uh, what is the number? There was one coffee house for every 200 Londoners. That's how wow. big it was. Um, and, uh, and it led to all sorts of new ways of thinking. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I make the case in the book that, you know, that the age of rationalism and the enlightenment, sure a lot to caffeine all those enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire that's amazing Diderot, they were you know 72 cup a day you know yeah. coffee drinkers 72 yeah i know you would think Jesus that would shred Christ. your stomach um, right. but uh, we don't know how strong it was right um coffee had a huge effect nt on on civilization and it's hard to picture a rena- uh, a uh, industrial revolution without it because before before that decade in the 1650s, people were drunk all the time. <laughs> yes, mean, you're right. <laughs> they were buzzed, at least buzzed. You know, they would have yeah. they would have cider, hard cider, alcoholic cider, morning, noon, and night, because and, or beer, because uh-huh. it was safer to drink than water, right. which was Be- contaminated. Um, Be- which and, is fascinating on its own, right? Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. you know, if you're that's fine if you're doing outdoor physical labor, but as soon as you're doing mind work yeah. as soon as you're operating heavy equipment as soon as you need to work at night mm-hmm. you need caffeine you need that focus you need yeah. that sobriety that transparency and caffeine is the perfect drug for capitalism and uh, and if you need any illustration yeah. of that just look at the coffee break right yeah. your employer gives you a drug coffee or tea caffeine and then gives you paid time in which to ingest it <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's incredible. Who, you know, who's benefiting from that? It's productive. But also to give its due too, and uh, it first sprung up in the Arab world, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it kind of explains the dominance of the Ottoman Empire. Could it be explained you know, to caffeine? You have, this, <laughs> um, you have these civilizations yeah. that have these flowerings yes. uh, around caffeine. And, right. um, you know, the Arab world invents mathematics yes. when they have caffeine. Because they got caffeine now. But now it's, I see how that <laughs> equation works. Finally! <laughs> As X approaches infinity, you guys, that's what it is. Infinity, uh, we never factored that in. Give me I some more would have gotten that on yeah. beer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But, it's, but what's interesting, though, is because and religion plays a factor in a lot of this drug use too, which uh, we could go back to pe- yeah. uh, peyote and the psychedelics and the Native Americans and everything. But it's interesting because uh, I guess in the Quran, you, you know, according to the Quran, I suppose you're not supposed to have alcohol. Uh, That's right. But so, but caffeine, since it's not mentioned in there, was okay. 
Yeah, caffeine gets yeah. a free pass. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I don't think there's anything about caffeine in the Bible either. It's, it's, uh, because uh, it was, yeah. un- I think it was Jesus didn't turn water into coffee; he turned it into yeah. uh, into, <laughs> into wine. wine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what's interesting. Caffeine is kind of late to the party with all the drugs that we've taken, and that's why we can see the before and after so clearly. Um, mm-hmm. But the other the other reason I think that these societies thrived when they got to coffee or tea is that it's a boiled drink. It's mm-hmm. the safest thing you could drink. Right. So it had a huge public health benefit too, since it you, by boiling, it, nobody ever uh, drank anything hot before coffee and tea, uh, and it it was um, just so much safer to drink than water. And and my guess is that public health improved in these places, and that was yeah. part of their flowering. Your book reminds me of just how nasty the world was. <laughs> like, so like when people want to go on a time machine and go, are you sure you want to go? The world was stinky and it was nasty. Yeah, it you was could die nasty. just from eating anything or drinking anything. <laughs> it was a nasty world. No antibiotics, no caffeine. Yeah, and it was the, tough. The effect now that caffeine has, so your opiates kind of shut things out. Yeah, psychedelics kind of, you see the world differently. But caffeine, it does something very interesting. It focuses you, uh, it kind of gives you a laser focus type of thing, right? Yeah. So there. So psychologists sometimes talk about two, two different kinds of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is kind of spotlight consciousness. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is the consciousness that allows you to focus on one thing at a time, okay. get shit done, and um, uh, block out everything else, uh, mm-hmm. all the peripheral uh, sensory inputs or ideas or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's really important to our success, uh, you know, in a Darwinian sense and ability right. to hold jobs, make podcasts, write books, all that stuff. Yes, right. But <laughs> yes. then there is another there is another consciousness that they call lantern consciousness. This is the consciousness that you see most vividly in children under the age of five or six. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't focus very well at all. They, they, they hop around from topic to topic mm-hmm. and they're taking in information from all sides. Um, and psychedelics brings back that kind of lantern consciousness. You do lose your focus. Caffeine is all about spotlight consciousness. And so, uh, and, you know, most of us kind of toggle between, although we spend most time with spotlight consciousness, partly because of all the caffeine in our system. Um, but um, lantern consciousness is very conducive to creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that it's those ideas out of left field that right. are often the best ideas. And, uh, you know, in terms of the execution and getting a book written, yes, you need spotlight consciousness, but mm-hmm. you need periods of that lantern consciousness where new metaphors and new ideas come into your head and that the psychedelics contribute to that. So I, I, that in itself is very interesting that there are different right. kinds of consciousness and that we can use chemicals to get from one to the other. Um, I, I find that kind of astonishing. Do you Thank think you, we'll- plants. Yeah, I know. It's really interesting that all this is right there. None of this has to be invented in a lab. It all kind of exists. And people, you know? and people figured it out. I mean, yeah. they were, you know, they were eating everything, right? Looking for food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure somebody on the savannas, you know, found there were mushrooms growing in the cow patties of the antelopes and everything. And, mm-hmm. uh, and said, Hey, look what happens when we eat this. And, uh, it's and mescaline, you know, has been in use for. Uh, we found in archaeological sites in Texas, um, six thousand year old. Wow. Um, use of peyote, the the cactus that contains mescaline. So, right. The human species has been tripping for a very long time. And it's there. It's funny how things like peyote 
I will take peyote as an example where it becomes such part of a culture in this instance, the Native American culture, but it has in cultures, I guess, in South America as yeah. well. What happens when uh, like drugs get decriminalized or, you know, they lose their classifications as protected for certain groups? Does that change the dynamics, do you think, of how you know, people even think of them because it's so tied to a religious activity. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the sacramental use of, of drugs, of psychedelics, mm-hmm. is a really interesting, rich subject. We're, we're really just learning about how far mm-hmm. back it goes. Um, and it may have been involved in early Christianity, too. They recently found in communion cups in medieval Spain mm-hmm. um, evidence of ergot, which is a fungus that produces something very close to LSD. And, um, Wait, and we know. I- I've been Catholic for years. I've never had this experience during <laughs> communion. <laughs> no, the wine is not what it used to be. No, um, it's not. <laughs> so, uh, and, the, and we know the ancient Greeks had a had a ritual where everyone consumed a psychedelic potion. We don't know exactly how it was made or what was in it, but you know the, these journeys to the underworld that are, mm-hmm. you know you hear described, or right. Plato's idea of a beyond, you know, a, a, a ideal realm of of mm-hmm. archetypal forms. All these, you know, may well be psychedelic visions um, that that then become part of our culture. The Native American use of psychedelics, I found particularly interesting because, you know, here we have a a really badly traumatized population, right, in America. And at the very moment where U.S. government policy was to essentially destroy Indian culture, this is in the 1880s, forcing Indians onto reservations, um, kidnapping their boys, cutting off their hair, sending Mm. them to boarding schools to, as as the headmasters would claim, to uh, kill the Indian and save the man. Okay, this was this was a horrible period in American history. Uh-huh. Um, Native Americans found that uh, a ceremony around peyote would be a very healing thing to do, and they were reviving a practice that had gone back thousands of years, and uh, and it started in Oklahoma and it gradually spread throughout America. And there was this. Uh, they they eventually called it the Native American Church. And it's still going strong. There are 250,000 members. Uh-huh. They have these regular meetings, peyote meetings. It's highly rigid and ritualized. Everyone uh-huh. sits around a fire, stares at it, focuses their thoughts on the person being healed. Uh, and it may be alcoholism or um, uh-huh. sexual abuse or uh, or a rite of, just a rite of passage, someone going off to war or getting married. Um, it goes on all night long. And uh, and they pass a, a, a basket of peyote buttons and people eat as many of them as they want. And the drug doesn't give you, doesn't take you out of where you are. It makes you feel more present than you ever have before. It intensifies mm-hmm. it. And it also can make you feel very unified with other people. And um, that's kind of unique properties of mescaline. And they have found this incredibly helpful uh, in in dealing with trauma in, and in preserving Indian identity because mm-hmm. all the, you know, the songs, the drumming, um, all the ritual is here. And, um, and it seems to me that's quite a beautiful ceremony. And the fact that um, it's legal, uh, that Native Americans since 1994 have had the, the legal right to use peyote which is for uh, for you and I is illegal is a, is a you know a crime um, is uh, is quite remarkable. They fought very hard to get that right, mm-hmm. um, 
But I think we're going to see other psychedelic churches forming um, mm-hmm. next few years. I think they're already starting to uh, around psilocybin. There'll be a church of lysergic acid at some point. And, mm-hmm. um, it'll be very interesting to see what the Supreme Court does, given how uh, expansive the jurisprudence around religion has been. You know, yeah. we, we now have judges who say, look, if it's against your religion, you don't have to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have to honor this regulation or this law. So I think it's going to kind of be an exploding cigar when one of these uh, psychedelic churches gets to the Supreme Court. Yeah, there's a lot happening. I think at the, in the times that we're in right now, I feel like we could be at a turning point for religion. Maybe not necessarily a turning point, but maybe an evolving point in just our relationship to religion. Science has been a major factor in that, but I think drugs may be an interesting factor in it now where I, I love this. Uh, I, I'm kind of misquoting it, but uh uh, when you talk about the, the church experience of peyote, where the Christians talk about Jesus, they go yeah. to church to talk about Jesus. We go to church to talk to Jesus. To Jesus you know? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. always been the, the the Catholic Church's problem with psychedelics, beginning with the Spanish conquest, right? Mm-hmm. When they get to Mexico and you've got Indians using uh, um, both peyote and Mm -hmm. uh, san pedro another uh, mescaline producing cactus and psilocybin sure and they and they called uh, psilocybin uh flesh of the gods so Mm -hmm. it was a sacrament and the same idea you're eating the flesh of the gods as in the eucharist right and um but it was a better sacrament frankly because you actually did meet god thousand percent better you didn't need faith and uh it wasn't it wasn't a metaphor and um and this was very threatening. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, the first drug war begins in, with the conquest in Mexico, where they uh-huh. crush these cults. Uh, they call them cults. Any religion you don't like, you call a cult. Right. Um, and they crushed them. Uh, and it went underground for 500 years. The amazing thing is it survived. Yeah. I mean, to go back to Marx, you know, as religion being opium, you know, you wonder if, you know, drugs themselves might replace that religious experience for some people, because for many people, religion serves, not for everybody, but it does serve to fill a hole that is missing in their lives. It's one of the biggest attractions to religion when, you know, the the Saul of Tarsus type of moment, you Mm -hmm. know, where Mm -hmm. you get hit with that lightning bolt. And I know it's really helped a lot of people. My sister's stopped smoking like in a day when she started going to church, you know, the effect that it just had on her and she smoked every day and everything. And I was like, that was the most fascinating thing I've ever seen. You know, the, the act of giving herself to a church, you know, the expression did yeah. that. And I wonder if, you know, maybe psychedelics might be the f- kind of sit beside religion in some ways once it becomes more widely accepted. I think, that's, that. I think that could well happen. I mean, mm-hmm. the fact is the experience many people have on psychedelics is a spiritual experience. Yeah. They have a sense of a higher power that they didn't have before. Um, and, and that, you know, shrinking of the ego and yielding some of mm-hmm. yourself to that higher power, it's very much the message of AA, right? And, yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, which has a spiritual component. And by the way, you know, was influenced by, uh, was was co-founded by Bill W. after he had a psychedelic experience. And um, that was, and he actually tried to introduce LSD into uh, AA and they thought there was, you know, the messaging, the messaging was a <laughs> right, problem. A little off. In fact, friends of Bill were all the, the people that he hallucinated about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that history is such an interesting one, but it was, yeah. um, but there was definitely some psychedelic DNA in, mm-hmm. in AA as much as people don't really want to admit it. Yeah. What, 
What was your biggest takeaway from the whole mescaline adventure and peyote adventure that you had? Well, a couple things. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we are reaching the end of the drug war. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, in the 2020 election showed that the voters have had it with the drug war. They, mm-hmm. they voted to legalize marijuana in five states, four of them red states, traditionally red states. Uh, Oregon voted to decriminalize all drugs uh, and to specifically to legalize um, psilocybin therapy. Um, mm-hmm. many, uh, this, uh, the city of Washington has decriminalized psychedelics. There's something going on. Mm-hmm. But legalizing or decriminalizing them is not going to be the end of the story. It's going to be the beginning of another story, which is how do we fold these into our lives safely? Because they're right. powerful substances. People do get into trouble with all of Absolutely. them. Um, and and we, we, we need to be honest about the risks also and psychological risks when it comes to psychedelics, not so much physical risks because mm-hmm. they're not habit forming. Um, and, um, you know, when psychedelics arrived in the West, they they showed up in the 50s and 60s and they didn't come with an instruction manual. And we use them recklessly in many cases. You know, yeah. people would put LSD in the punch bowl. Yeah, um, it's crazy. Spike it for people, nuts. not even tell people that they were tripping. Can you imagine and of course, that? The CIA yeah. was doing the same thing to, yes. to see what would happen. Um, so, how do we learn how to use them well? Um, well, one model we have are these traditional cultures that have been using them for thousands of years or hundreds of years. And Look how they use them. Um, and, and the lessons I take from the Native American church or, you know, other uh, indigenous uses of psychedelics is that you don't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're taking a high dose, there is uh, there's usually an elder involved mm-hmm. who knows the territory. You do it not for casual reasons. You do it for an intention. You want to learn something. You want to fix something. Um, it's it's intentional. Um, you surround it with ritual. There are very clear rituals, rules, taboos um, for how you do it. And people who use drugs in a ritual way are much less likely to get in trouble with them. So I think we have a lot to learn from these these cultures uh, as we kind of enter a period of potentially of legal psychedelic use. And where does, uh, finally, where does, where does cannabis lie in all this? Is it in the opium class? No, it's in its own class. Yeah. And, it, and it, it, what's interesting about cannabis is the, the, the neurotransmitter mm-hmm. network that it, it affects. We didn't even know it existed until we started researching cannabis. It's mm-hmm. the cannabinoid network, and it's, it's involved with hunger and memory and emotion, right. all these different things. Um, and uh, I studied cannabis science uh, for uh, an earlier book of mine called Botany of Desire. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's a completely separate um, I think it has a big effect on memory, short-term memory. Um, you know, it, it immerses you in the present in a way few substances do mm-hmm. because you can't, you can't remember what you said. Two minutes ago. <laughs> and, um, right. but that's very interesting. And, and that yeah. editing function that, you know, you, you have so much information that you're exposed to every day. If you did not have a technique for forgetting 99% of it, you'd be screwed. You'd be overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And the cannabinoid network may be involved in that of like, okay, we're going to save this. This is important. This contributes to your life narrative Mm -hmm. and this can go, we don't need this anymore. And um, so cannabis may be involved in that, Uh, but we know it affects appetite obviously. And that's why it was very helpful for AIDS patients in the, in the eighties and nineties. Um, but anyway, we're still learning um, that we have a dedicated receptor for 
cannabis is kind of amazing. And, it's kind and of the, the body produces its own cannabinoids. Oh, I didn't know that. It's kind of the opposite of, of caffeine in many ways. Yeah, it is. It's mm-hmm. certainly um, uh, more of a lantern consciousness experience yeah. than uh, than a spotlight one. Yeah, I think it is very different than caffeine. It's funny how the all the uh, admonitions to not do drugs in the past, especially those those industrial films they used to show us in school where, you know, weed was the gateway to all these other drugs and stuff. But ironically, cannabis may be the gateway to more accepted social drug use like opiates, opiates maybe and psychedelics and all these other things, right? Ironically, it may be the gateway drug that we were waiting for. In a way, it is a gateway (laughs) drug. I mean, it's certainly the first one to be decriminalized. And and it followed a similar path in that uh, medical marijuana was recognized first. And that kind of changed the image Mm -hmm. of marijuana from like Cheech and Chong to, you know, Dr. Welby, you know? Well, and remember it was first used against... uh, especially uh, Mexican-Americans and that sort of thing to like disparage them and make them this other and, and black oh, yeah. people, the, the Negro that smokes the marijuana is going to rape your white women. It was always kind of put in that class. Yeah, no, I mean, very often uh, drugs association with certain populations is what's, you know, damn them and uh, without question. And, you know, psychedelics have had a fairly uh, free ride, I think, because they're mostly used by, by white people. people. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. And exactly. When white people use it, hey, this thing is a trip, man. This is medicine. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I think that's changing. I, I uh-huh. think I see that out here. You know, there's a group in Oakland, very interested, uh, that does rites of passage for um, poor black youth. And they're very interested in working with psilocybin mm-hmm. and uh, they see it as a, as a tool to help heal racial trauma. So I think wow, the, the that's whiteness of psychedelics will, is going to give way at a certain point and, um, and yeah. that'll be a healthy thing. I'm fascinated by what psychedelics might do for people, especially as you say, and it, it is ironic that you did your thing on that during the pandemic when, I think we are going through a trauma with this pandemic, you know, there's, and it's bringing up a lot of anxiety for people in different ways. You know, the way yeah. that we're losing people. I lost my brother during it. I've been no, dealing I'm with sorry. things. I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, and, and so I'm fascinated by that chapter uh, and how it addresses a lot of uh, these feelings that we're going through. That's why I think we're also at this turning point society where I think this door is open right now to, you know, having that as a tool to deal with this in a way that, you know, your psychiatrist can't do that, you know, just talking yeah. about it, you know, and even religion, all these other things, outlets, you know, whatever it is. That well, that might I was be surprised thing. after publishing This Is Your Mind on Plants, where I expected a lot of pushback from like mainstream psychiatry, mm-hmm. mainstream psychology. It was the opposite. Yeah. They know that they need new tools. They know that they're up Absolutely. against a crisis and it's only gotten worse in the pandemic. Yeah. of people struggling um, with depression, with anxiety, mm-hmm. suicidality. And um, and mental health treatment really is broken in this country yeah. and has very lousy tools. I mean, mm-hmm. SSRIs help some people, but a lot of people don't like taking them. They, they have side effects. They, mm-hmm. um, they're hard to get off. They're addictive themselves. Yeah. Um, and the idea that we might have a new class of drugs that could really help people that you don't have to take every day for the rest of your life. You do mm-hmm. once or twice. 
is being embraced in a way I, I never expected to happen. So I think we could be on the edge mm -hmm. of, a, of a revolution in mental health care. And, yeah. uh, and it couldn't come a moment too soon. I agree. It's fascinating. Last, last thing I wanted to ask you. One thing I was interested in is, is how long the therapeutic effect might have at psychedelic. Because we know caffeine lasts for however long during that day, you know. Although the effect of taking caffeine, you know, as you point out, takes you a while to, to get over that. But in terms of, if we're talking about for therapeutic use, does this ha affect, does this have an effect in you that lasts for a long time? Because since it's called a mind altering drug. Yeah. So psychedelics, we're still studying that. Mm -hmm. And in depression, it seems like people seem to need a booster after six months or a year. But that's a um, long time. That's, that's a really amazing. long time. But in the case yeah. of things like addiction and OCD, we're seeing permanent effects. Um, wow. that, that people are actually changed. Right. By that single experience. And that's kind of incredible. Yes, um, because the other drugs you have to take every day. Every the, day. And yeah. that will not be the case with psychedelics. It'll wow. be every few months at the most. The people on trauma have two or three doses of MDMA. Yeah. And then that's it. And they, they're no longer symptomatic. So wow. we may have something that is much more like a cure than merely a treatment of symptoms. And that's really exciting. That's a game changer. That's the thing I it wondered is. about because... Since it alters so much of just your relationship with things, you know, it well, makes your brain. it's about perspective. Exactly. It's about a new perspective. And, That's right. And once you have acquired that perspective, you can, you can hold on to it. Ah, I love that. It's <laughs> so great. Michael, thank you so much for being here. I could talk to you forever, so that's why I got to cut it off because I could go on the whole day talking about this. But guys, This Is Your Mind on Plants just continues uh, Michael's journey in this area is with psychedelics and all these other things. But there's so much in here. That's why I call it going down a rabbit hole. And it, <laughs> really, honestly, you know, that's what the book feels like. And you go down different rabbit holes in your different chapters, I, that's too. That's my life. I love yes. going down rabbit holes. I know. It's great. <laughs> I love them, though, because you go down one and then you come back and then you go down another one you know it's yeah. it's really good no, but the journey the journey is for me uh, in writing and doing journalism that's the that's the thrill is finding yourself in unexpected places and i and i certainly did working on this subject yes and as a side note i just want to give you props for being able to find those missing pages because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as a writer i know how hard it is especially with old technology i have stuff from the 90s i have no way of getting that stuff back oh There's man the no one way. lesson i took away yeah. if you want to save anything for more than five years yeah. acid free paper man nothing digital <laughs> right exactly but michael Pollan, this is your mind on plants get it guys it's such a great read and uh really so much of this especially the chapter in psychedelics man it's just endlessly fascinating it makes me want to go do it i'm not saying i am but you know okay. might have to thanks michael hey thank you larry great pleasure talking to you absolutely take care